depth psychologists often speak of the self with a capital S in a tone of reverence. So are we all selfish narcissists who worship ourselves? In this episode, we'll explore the concept of the deep inner self, discover some of its wisdom, and see how it appears to us in dreams. From dreams of friends distracted by shoes, to diamond rings of gold, wise bright lights, to symphony concerts in tall towers, I'll show you how to make sense of the language of dreams. Welcome to the Stuff of Dreams. I'm your host, Amy Lawson, MD, practicing pediatrician. I also have a master's degree in depth psychology, specifically in Jungian and archetypal studies. My goal is to connect you with your dreams in a more fun and meaningful way so that you can interpret the messages your unconscious is sending. So we've talked a lot about conscious versus unconscious on the podcast, but I don't think we've talked about self very much. And because I have a collection of three dreams now that really show how the self can show up in our unconscious images, I wanted to do an episode dedicated to this. So first we need to talk about the difference between self and capital S self. So we use the word self all the time. It means us. It means our particular humanness. It relates to an us versus them, a me versus you. So myself is me, Amy. But in general, the small s self is more referring to our ego. It's more referring to us as a person, as we're seen in the world, as other people experience us, as we experience ourselves. For Jungians and depth psychologists, the word self with a capital S has a more specific meaning. And it really refers to a deeper inner part of us. Jung called the self both the center and the circumference of the psyche. And by that, he means that the self is the center of us. It's the deepest part. It's a point around which all of our psyche is organized. It's the deepest center of meaning in the psyche. But it's also the circumference of the psyche, meaning the whole, the entire our self is made up of our conscious parts and our unconscious parts. And especially in the English language, the word self has very individualistic overtones. It's the root of the word selfish, which is one that I often struggle with because I was taught it's not good to think too much of myself. I'm supposed to think of other people, too. So if I'm spending all this time in Jungian psychology studying the self and talking with myself that sounds inherently selfish and navel-gazing and introverted. But because the self, with a capital S, contains parts of me that I will never be able to directly access, self is always other. And that makes it transpersonal. That makes it bigger than me. That makes it almost like something outside of me that I can relate to, even though it's a part of me too. Have I confused you yet? This is why it's difficult to talk about the self. But one of the functions of the self, one of its purposes, is that it shrinks the ego. Because the ego has to realize that there's a much greater part of the psyche that it can't directly relate to. And that it doesn't have power and control over. Jung said that the experience of the self is always a defeat to the ego. Because there's so much going on in us unconsciously. Our complexes, our archetypal foundations our imaginations and active imaginations and dreams. And so to me, saying that I have a relationship with the capital S self 
and that I see it as a deep form of wisdom isn't saying that conscious Amy Lawson is that wisdom. The wisdom of the self is other, and I can sometimes get a glimpse of it. I can see flashes of it. I can hear from it in my dreams, but it's not synonymous with me. And so I don't think that this kind of study is inherently selfish and not useful for anyone else. Because I think if we learn to live more in tune with our deeper, wiser selves, if we manage to integrate more and more parts of ourselves into our conscious ego, then we're becoming better people, more rounded people, people who can think and feel more deeply. And that's going to affect the people around us and it's going to affect our careers and our relationships and the world in general in some way. And so it is something that I have struggled with in the past, but I have come to truly believe that when I focus on inner work and connecting with myself, it's benefiting more than just me. I'm always surprised about how if I'm, you know, thinking and dreaming about something in particular at some point in time, I'll start to see that outwardly in other people's conversations with me or in my work or in other people's dreams. And so I think that we're all a lot more interconnected than our individualistic Western culture would have us believe. For Jung, one of the main points of individuation, which is what he called the process of growing and maturing and integrating more parts of your psyche into your consciousness is that in the individuation process, you're moving the metaphoric center of gravity of your psyche. In our early lives, the only center of gravity we have is our ego and the parts of us that we can directly access. We spend the first part of our lives developing that ego and deciding what's going to be part of our personality, either actively or through listening to our culture and our family. And so for most younger people, the center of gravity of their psyche is in the ego. But as we do more inner work and go more deeply and start to learn from other less accessible parts of our psyche, we're shifting the center of gravity from the ego to some point between consciousness and unconsciousness, which Jung says is called the self with a capital S. Because it acts so often through unconscious means, the self isn't directly bossing us around and causing us to do things. It usually isn't directly speaking to us, but it is organizing pieces of our psyche and how they relate to each other. The self is an important organizing principle for us. So how does it organize without being in conscious control? I have one more beautiful Jung quote that I want to share with you that explains this a little bit more. And then we're going to get to some more concrete examples of how the self is revealed to us in images. Don't worry. But one more quote, please. Jung used this example to show how the self really helps us to follow our own nature. Our attitude must be like that of the mountain pine. It does not get annoyed when its growth is obstructed by a stone, nor does it make plans about how to overcome the obstacles. It merely tries to feel whether it should grow more toward the left or the right, toward the slope or away from it. Like the tree, we should give in to this almost imperceptible yet powerfully dominating impulse, an impulse that comes from the urge toward unique, creative self-realization. 
and this is a process in which one must repeatedly seek out and find something that is not yet known to anyone. The guiding hints or impulses come not from the ego, but from the totality of the psyche, the self. I just find that picture so beautiful and informative that a tree doesn't have some conscious will where it sets out and decides how it's going to grow. It doesn't get angry when things are in its way. It doesn't make plans about how to overcome every obstacle around it. It just tries to feel where it's supposed to grow. And that's what the impulses and the messages from ourself do. If we can learn to tune in to its subtle nudges, then we can gently and gracefully grow in the direction of our own natures rather than forcing and controlling and thinking and planning all the time. Now, of course, there are times and situations where we have to do those things. But when it comes to the issues of deeper psychology, we often don't know ourselves well enough to be able to think and plan all the directions that we're going to grow in. We have to listen and be willing to be nudged in directions that we weren't necessarily planning on exploring. So when do symbols of the self come up in our dreams? Jung noticed that these images of self or totality or wholeness often showed up when the ego was feeling depleted. Remember, we talked about how ego and self are almost opposites. The ego is our consciousness. The self is our center of meaning and our whole psyche. And we've talked before about how dreams are often compensatory, right? That their message sometimes is meant to compensate, to rebalance some direction in which we've become too one-sided. And so if our ego is feeling particularly not powerful, particularly not in control, then we sometimes get these images of the self in dreams to remind us that there is a deeper part of us that's in control, even if it's not that conscious control that we're used to. So what are some specific symbols of the self that we can look for in our dreams? Well, this isn't an exhaustive list, of course, but since the self is our whole psyche, it can be represented as a circle or a mandala, which is a circular piece of art that often has a lot of symmetry to it. The self can also be symbolized by a diamond or a square, because that too is a shape that is all-encompassing. We've talked about the number four as a perfect number, a number of totality. And so sometimes if there are four items or objects in a dream, that's representing the total self. The self can also be symbolized by two halves that make a whole. For example, a male and female couple, a king and a queen, or the yin and yang symbols of Eastern philosophies. The self can appear as a flower, a perfect flower. So those are just some general ideas. And now let's get to some dreams that'll give us some more concrete illustrations. As always, dreams are only used with the dreamer's permission. This dream was emailed to me by a female dreamer. In my dream, I found that I am telling my AA sponsor, Hannah, that all my life I didn't know that my problem was my internalized feelings, and so I kept struggling with relationships, and I was in so much pain, and I'm crying and distraught. She's sitting next to me and listening to me, seeing me with compassion, but then a lady arrives showing her new shoes and she excuses herself, gets distracted, though she wants to listen and be there for me. I find myself straightening up my posture, unable to feel or share my feelings anymore. 
Then suddenly, I have been proposed to by a guy who looks like someone I know from Pakistan. He's giving me a ring that has three diamonds, but one of the diamonds is missing. It looks similar to one of my wedding rings. In real life, I was married three times. He's asked me to go to a particular jeweler to get it fixed. When I arrive at the jeweler, he recognizes the ring right away. The diamond has already been paid for. The jeweler takes the ring from me, and I notice that I'm holding another, bigger ring in my hands. This other ring feels heavy, sturdy, more of a man's ring. It has diamonds too, though not as shiny. I think to myself, this must be a jeweler of high quality. The jeweler is busy with his back toward me, looking for the diamond and talking to me. He's telling me that the gentleman who got the diamond tried another jeweler, but they didn't have it, so he came to him. I'm wondering why I have this big, sturdy man's ring in my hand and who it belongs to. Whether it's mine or the jeweler's, I'm unable to tell. All right, it's really the second part of the dream that's an illustration of self-imagery, but I wanted to include the first part of the dream because it's a good example of how a dream can be interpreted on multiple levels. So let's do that first. The setting of the first part of the dream is the dreamer speaking with her AA sponsor. So that feels like an image of her talking to someone who is supposed to be very supportive, is supposed to have her best interest at heart, is supposed to help her live her life right and stay on the right track. And she's crying and distraught and talking about her internalized feelings and her struggles with relationships. And she's pouring her heart out to this sponsor figure who subsequently excuses herself because she gets distracted by some other woman coming to show her new shoes. And that makes the dreamer not want to share her feelings anymore. So this part of the dream feels like a commentary about not being able to count on support somehow. So I wondered if that was a pattern for the dreamer, if people who were supposed to support her and look out for her best interests were actually put off or distracted by talking about her feelings. Or if we do the Jungian thing of taking that sponsor figure to be another part of the dreamer herself, then I wonder if there is a part of the dreamer that's in charge of keeping her safe and sane and on the right track. And that part isn't really able to engage with her strong emotions, especially her negative emotions. Maybe it feels threatened by those. And so it lets itself get distracted by shiny things like new shoes over on someone else. And so I'll just give you the feedback she sent to me about that first part of the dream. She wrote, for the first part, both your interpretations could be true. My parents are not people I turn to to share my feelings very often. I took some attachment style tests and my results showed ambivalent attachment style. So that would make sense if this supportive sponsor figure was symbolizing somebody external in her life who she should be able to count on like her parents. She continues, however, your second interpretation of my own saner part unable to deal with big emotions feels more true. My personality is such that I seek multiple distractions to avoid pain. So that makes sense, too, that there are parts of her kind of at war that that can't really listen to each other because one part is afraid of the big emotions and lets itself get distracted. Okay, on to the next part, which is really the meat of the dream. She's been proposed to and her fiancé has given her a ring with three diamonds, but one of them's missing. 
I know we've talked about numbers before and how three is a number of transition. In depth psychology, we talk about the transcendent function, which means when two things come along that seem diametrically opposed, somehow a third thing will come up that unifies them and helps you get out of the psychological bind that you're in somehow. So the fact that this ring has room for three diamonds, but there are only two there for now, seems like potential, right? Potential for transformation when that diamond gets replaced. And so she's taking this ring to a particular jeweler to get it fixed. And the jeweler has already been paid, already has the diamond ready to replace. So she hands over the ring. So this jeweler represents a part of her that is able to do repairs, that is able to provide that transcendent third diamond that's going to lead to some kind of transformation. So she hands over this ring that she's gotten from her fiancé or from some masculine side, but she's gotten it from elsewhere. And then she realizes that she's holding another ring in her hands. And it feels heavier and sturdier, almost like a man's ring. It has diamonds too, but it's not as shiny. And she has this sense that this jeweler must be a very high quality jeweler. She wonders why she has this big sturdy ring in her hand and who it belongs to because she's not sure if it's hers or if it belongs to the jeweler. Well, remember when we were talking about what can symbolize the self, we talked about that one image for the self is a circle. And so I think that this ring, this ring that she just has without it being given to her, this ring that she just happens to have in her hand is the symbol of her true self. I like that it's heavier and bigger and sturdier. It's not some little delicate, flowery, feminine piece of jewelry. It's substantial. And that feels like a mix of masculine and feminine, which, of course, the self is wholeness, so it contains both. I think this dream is saying that if she expects to get a ring from someone else in a proposal, if she expects to complete herself from outside somehow, the ring's going to be missing something. It's going to be missing that diamond and need to be repaired. But if she relies on what she already has, this ring that she finds that she just has in her hand, that's the more reliable, sturdy, grounded symbol of herself that she can be connected to without having to receive it from someone else and without having to have it repaired by someone else. Because as we talked about in the first part of the podcast, the self is our deep center. It's a deep place of wisdom. It's perfect. It's whole. And it's ours. We don't need to get it from someone else. And it doesn't need any repair. She says at the end of the dream that she doesn't know if the ring belongs to her or to the jeweler, but I think she needs to claim it, symbolizing herself, as hers. And even if she did find that the ring belonged to the jeweler, the jeweler is a part of her too, right? It's a part of her psyche. He's a very qualified artisan who is capable of creating beautiful jewelry, and so that would be all right too. It's interesting that she says the ring that she's holding looks older and not as shiny. Because to me, that doesn't feel like an image of something less valuable. It feels like an older ring, something that's more worn, that has been used more, that is a really old symbol of wealth, and that feels more permanent. 
So to reiterate, I think that this part of the dream is about her unconscious prompting her to claim herself, to realize that that ring of great value really is hers and that she doesn't need to get a ring from anyone else. She doesn't need to have her ring repaired by anyone else. She already has the very valuable ring that represents her self with a capital S. And so to that part of the interpretation, she replied, I absolutely love the interpretation of that part. Who wouldn't? Again, both interpretations seem plausible, though I can accept that the big sturdy ring is mine. Perhaps this is pointing to more stillness and meditation, being more with myself, or just doing what I'm currently doing. You know, it's funny how I've noticed that a lot of times when I send really positive interpretations of a dream, people can have more trouble accepting those than they do when the dreams are saying something scary or negative or critical of them. So to this dreamer, I say own the positivity of this dream because that's what I see there. On to the next dream. I don't know the gender of this dreamer, so I'm just going to say he because it really doesn't have a bearing on the dream. Recently, I had a dream. There was no environment in the dream except for in every direction I could see the color white. I had no body, and in front of me there was a blob of bright light. I had no sense of fear or anger, just calmness. The blob spoke to me in a neutral tone, no male or female inclination. It said, you have the courage and strength, but beware, the shadow is growing. And then I woke up. I'm at a loss as to what the shadow is, and I don't understand the nature of what gave me this information. Well, anybody who's been listening to my podcast should be able to tell this dreamer what the shadow is, right? So we aren't going to go over that again, although I did educate him in my response. But this is one of those very simple, streamlined dreams, right? There really is no setting to the dream. He says there was no environment. All he can see is the color white and then a blob of bright light. He doesn't feel any emotion about it as far as fear or anger, just calmness. So that seems like important information. It seems like that lack of negative emotion means that we really can trust this source of information, I think. And he says the blob spoke in a neutral tone, didn't sound masculine or feminine. So again, that evokes the self to me, right? Because the self is masculine plus feminine. The self is wholeness. The self is balance. And so I think that this blob of bright light that really has no other characteristics is a perfect representation of the self as our deep center. And what message does the self have for him? You have the courage and strength, but beware the shadow is growing. And I just love how remarkably direct this dream is, right? His self wasn't playing around. It wasn't trying to clothe itself in lots of detailed imagery. It wasn't trying to evoke a bunch of strong emotions so that it could be heard. His unconscious just went simple and was like, I'm just going to say what I need to say. And it's really nice when you get that direct message sometimes, right? And the whiteness, you know, remember that white is the combination of all colors, so that makes sense since we know that the self is our totality. It's all the parts of us. And so I think this message means that something's going to be coming up in the dreamer's life that they're going to need courage and strength to deal with. And they're going to be able to get through that because they do have the needed attributes. 
but the dreamer is supposed to attend to his shadow somehow. So what parts of him might he be repressing into the shadow? What negative parts of him might be getting in the way of the courage and strength that he needs to show for whatever struggle or conflict is coming up in his life, whether that's external or internal? And so in response, this dreamer wrote, I recognize how powerful the message was, and I'd rather not have my shadow be my dominant side, so anything to prevent that. It does make sense to me because over the years, suppression has been my go-to response to things that have negative effects, like the shadow, all of which add up over time. So if any blobs of bright white light ever speak to you in a dream, you should probably listen. All right, the last dream for today is mine. I'm visiting a tall building to attend a symphony concert. The theater is on the top floor, the 31st floor, and it is round. When we get up to it, I'm told that there's someone sick or hurt backstage, and I'm asked to help since I'm a doctor. I begin walking down the corridor looking for a way to the stage. This hallway is a circle that goes all the way around the building, following the outer wall, and I walk around two or three times, but I can't find a door to take me to the stage or backstage, just doors into the audience area. I realize I need to find doors or stairs that go down because the backstage area is underneath where I am now, but I can't find access. I feel anxious and try to hurry because I know the person needs help. Okay, so the geography of this dream is that I'm in a tall, round building where there's a theater on the top floor. Just like the first dream that had a ring as a symbol of self, I really think that this round tower is symbolizing myself in a way. So I'm there to attend a symphony concert, and that evokes images of, of music and also of lots of parts working together as a whole to make a product, which is the music that they make. I kind of like the thought of all the different parts of my psyche being all the different musicians that make up the orchestra. And this theater is on the top floor of the building, which I know is the 31st floor. So what should we make of the number 31? Well, I do like that number because three plus one is four. So four is like a symbol of perfection. And four can also be a symbol of the self. So that's another clue I have that I think this tower is representing myself. And I like the three plus one because there's movement in that, right? It's not like I'm just on the fourth floor of the tower. I'm on the 31st floor. I've got to do some adding to get to four. It doesn't feel quite settled yet. But when I get up to the top of the tower, I want to go to the concert, but instead I'm told that somebody is sick or hurt backstage and I need to help them because even in the dream, I'm a doctor. So I start walking around. I need to find a way to get backstage. I only know how to get to the audience portion. Of course, if we take all of these characters in the dream as parts of me, then I'm really looking for some sick or hurt part of me that's located somewhere that I don't quite have access to. Because I can see the round circular hallway that I'm walking, and I walk around it like three times, but I can't find a door that'll take me backstage. And then I realized that I don't need to go in a door toward the inner part of the tower. I need to go down. 
And that makes sense, right? I need to go down further in the psyche. I need to get closer to the unconscious. I need to get closer down into the core of my capital S self. And I can't find the access. And the dream just ends in, I feel anxious and panicky and I'm trying to hurry because I know that this person needs help. And so I think that the message of this dream is pretty clear, that there's some part of me that is sick or hurt, some deeper part of me that I'm trying to gain access to, but I just haven't found the way to get there yet. And based on when this dream happened in my life, there could be a few different things that that was representing. And this is one of those dreams where it's really kind of universal, right? This dream could apply to anyone. We all have times when there are parts of us that are sick and hurting and we just can't quite figure out how to get to them to try to heal them. And that's what I like about dreams. They don't always only apply to the dreamer. They often can be meaningful to other people as well. Okay, so that's the show for this week. Uh, next week's episode is going to be about bathroom dreams, so that should be fun. I have an intrepid interviewee coming on to speak to us about that. As always, you can email me directly with dreams or comments at stuffofdreamspodcast at gmail.com. Head on over to my website at stuffofdreams.fireside.fm to find show notes for each episode and links. And thank you so much for listening. If you liked it, I encourage you to tell a friend about it this week. Let's get more people fluent in the language of dreams. Bye for now, and I hope you dream tonight.